0: <laughs> the Samivar Network. The our network.
1: Salam, Ishtanin Singaye. This is Weiss.
0: And this is Nura. Wow, Weiss. You do that better than Omar. I think I found a replacement.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I that's what I thought too. I, I thought I thought it was well. So so where were you last night, Nora?
0: Um, so I was watching the Duke uh, basketball game. They I was out a little too late, but they beat Virginia Tech and are now in the Elite Eight, so I, I can't say I regret it. It was pretty good.
1: So you're a big Duke fan, right? I am. Okay, question. So you are you are a practicing Muslim, correct?
0: Yes. How
1: comfortable do you feel cheering for a team called the Blue Devils?
0: So it's interesting you ask that because at a Campus Jummah, um, our Imam says that we're probably the only Muslim place in the country that makes Dawa for devils. This has actually <laughs> been something we've talked about for. Friday. Yeah. But-
1: that bugs me. And and shame on you guys. That should we're, bug you, too. How dare you? We're
0: blue devils, though. We're not, like, Shaitan red. We're, we're blue. So it's, like, ironic, right? It diminishes the evilness and adds in, like, the... I'm I'm gonna go... Someone's gonna get offended by this, so I'll stop, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's we, me.
1: I am offended. <laughs>
0: But it's fun. Everyone should go to uh, um, a Duke game once in their life because the fans are insane.
1: Oh, uh, I can't imagine. So, Sonora, tell, me who, tell me who we spoke to today.
0: I'm so excited. We are having one of my favorite um, political scientists on on the call. Um, so I'm, I'm finishing up my degree in political science and so is uh, my dear friend, Kais and He's a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Minnesota. And I just said that oh, like they do, Minnesota. You're gonna catch me doing that. So Kaiser's work is in critical international relations, gender and sexuality. And for his interv- uh, his dissertation, he interviews Afghans in the U. S. And he does a lot of work on gender and sexuality and within the Afghan diaspora and. What's cool about Kais is that not only does he do this work academically, but he's engaged in the community. He's facilitated conversations at the Afghan American Conference and other um, local communities across the country. So it's really a special treat, I think, for our audience to have uh, a chance to kind of hear him because he's done this work on the ground and professionally academically.
1: Yeah, and we had a chance to talk to him about his research in gender studies and violence and forms of masculinity. We also discussed how one finds love in Minnesota and the importance of self-love. He also knocked me down several pegs during our second trivia game. But was that in Oh my god, it was terrible. Which by the way, I you know, thinking of the term like knocking down pegs, I do you know what a peg is in that situation?
0: I don't, and now I feel like that's a question our our audience has to answer for us.
1: Yeah, please tweet tw- tweet the uh, <laughs> tweet the page and, and answer that question. But um, but man, no, he, yeah, he really, he really knocked me down. So, um, but was that enough to beat Nilafat Hidayat? You're gonna have to stay tuned to find that out. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the talk, and uh, let's introduce Kai's.
0: The Samovar Network. 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 Salam, salam. Well,
2: so- so
0: how are you, guys?
2: Good, how are you doing, Nora?
0: Doing well. We're so excited to have you on the call. Um, Thank so much you- I wish we could show the video broadcast because you're wearing the most fabulous shade of pink right now. <laughs> and it reminds me of when you and I went to the annual political science association conference together in Boston? Was it last it was, fall, right?
2: It was, yeah, last fall.
0: It was, and so oh, that, yeah. and so I remember I was really nervous because it was my first session, and I would walk into this room, and everyone is wearing the most dreary, like, black blazers, and they're like they look really frumpy and conservative, and I walked in with this, like, pink flowery jumpsuit and hijab. And I sit down and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then you walked in like two minutes after me, you see me and then you pull this pink scarf out of your bag, <laughs> you throw it around your shoulders and you sit in the back with me. And I was like, this, this, this is why we're friends, you know? We're like this <laughs> in at this political science conference and we're both wearing like the same shade of pink, rocking it in the back while the rest of the room looks like they're at a funeral. So I think that was my favorite
2: moment of the conference. I think it was like just coming in, walking in the room and seeing you with the hijab and the floral dress.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: it gave me that confidence that I can queer the space. It's already <laughs> queer by being a, a, a Muslim woman's presence in that very much white space. So in many ways, I think we we complemented each other throughout the conference. Yeah. In like navigating our um, ourselves through these very much racialized spaces. Um and that pink was our solidarity color. So that's I'm glad that we we did it.
0: <laughs> now we have to keep the tradition up and do it yep.
2: next time. Next time, yep. Twice
0: I, I'm doing
2: up? it today, but you 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 didn't do it, so
0: <laughs> no, I got I'm gonna find a piece about that, I promise, before the call ends. I'm wearing a very dreary gray right now. I think white is more colorful than me, actually. He was wearing f- a nice sky blue.
1: I feel kind of embarrassed because I actually do have a purple-ish, like, dressed shirt that I wore yesterday. And I think two days in a row is, like, my <laughs> – that's, that's, like, I can't I can't do that. That's, that's the closest <laughs> I have towards any sense of fashion is that I know I shouldn't wear the same thing literally two days in a row. I'm terrible with this. Uh, so that actually, that transitions very nicely to uh, sort of what, what you study and what you've been researching. So uh, one thing that I've noticed is that in your work, you describe that there are multiple forms of masculinity. So what, what does that mean?
2: So masculinity, just to give a very quick definition to our audience, um, is a gender expression. Uh, because we are taught in so many ways um, w- how to see our masculinity, how how to perceive other people's femininities and masculinities. I just wanted to give a very quick um, uh, explanation for gender itself, because gender is not um, sex. Sex is um, something that a doctor sees and identifies the person at, at birth through um Physical um, and visible um, attributes, and that's also in relation to hormones, chromosome, and also other things like female and male that they call it. But gender itself is um, somebody's internal understanding of themselves, how they understand themselves, and then within that, we we uh, the societies come with man and woman, uh, trans. And queer, uh, gender queer, and then um, gender expression is where we uh, come with femininities and masculinities, which are expressions that we project through our behaviors, through our clothing, through our um, other forms of um, uh, life, uh, playing, choice of color, choice of music, um, and all of that that other people perceive us. Um, so with that, as we, Nora and I were talking about the pink color, and that was my own, um, um, gender queer expressions, um, of self, um, wearing uh, the color pink, which is continuously attributed and attached to the feminine, uh, or the femininity. Um, so my, um, my, um, understanding of um, masculinity is in relation to my own um, uh, personal journey, and and which now translates into my research. And so there are multiple forms of masculinities, uh, depending on the, where we are also, in which part of the world we are, which communities we are, what languages we talk about, um, and also what religions, because uh, masculinities are Um, multiple. That's why we call the masculinities in relation to there's not one form. Um, And so there's uh, the major, um, if we go uh, a little academic, uh, R.W. Connell and also uh, Michael Kimmel are two people who have continuously uh, in in the U.S., um, have uh, conceptualized masculinities, um, and one big form of that is hegemonic masculinities. And hegemonic masculinities are in relation to power, in relation to uh, cultural hegemony, that some forms of um, masculinities are situated in relation to women, and also in relation to uh, non-masculinities, non-heteronormativities like uh, queer, LGBTQ, uh, trans, and also sometimes they're also racialized because um, oftentimes uh, masculinities of uh, white men are situated as superior to other forms of masculinities, black masculinities, brown masculinities, um, that, and yes,
0: that is that. So, is white masculin- So, when you say hegemonic, it's such a, I mean, so the dominant masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. So, white masculinity like the example of a hegemonic masculinity?
2: Uh, Yes, because it's in relation to power and it's it's also in relation to access. What sort of uh, access you have to wealth, access you have to social status, access you have to uh, other forms of benefits and privileges in life. So all of those are um, under the hegemonic masculinity. And so hegemonic masculinities are, we can say racialized, they're classed, they're gendered, and they're sexed. And uh, that's where um, the conversation around toxic masculinity comes in because masculinity per se is nothing bad or negative. Okay. Um, when we talk about masculinity, oftentimes heteronormative um, cis men uh, become very troubled. Uh, and and uncomfortable uh, because um, they perceive it as as a form of attack. Uh, yeah. to, Sorry, to just to so,
1: just to jump in, um, just so that we get the verbiage correct. When you say cis men, what how do you what what is cis men?
2: Um, so cis men are men who um, are born um, as the gender that they were assigned at birth, and they're comfortable still with that gender identity. So when a boy uh, when a child was born and the doctor identified the child as a boy, and this boy also grew into a man and still identifies as a man, that is considered cis man. Uh, or if a woman similar thing is a cis woman. Um, so then the other the, the other side is trans or queer, uh, gender queer, uh, that you don't identify with the gender that you are assigned. At birth. Um, so going back to uh, toxic masculinity, um, many of uh, my audience, whenever I, I, I speak to them, I have to uh, start with, with telling them that my uh, research or my teaching is not uh, an attack on all men's masculinities. Masculinities could be very beautiful in many ways, how we carry ourselves, just like how feminities could be beautiful and toxic. So there's like toxic femininity too. We sometimes don't talk about it. And um,
1: do you think? Do you think you have to do that because? people just inherently feel threatened by that, this kind of conversation?
2: Exactly, yes, because I don't want them um, to just- And by complete, people, I mean men. <laughs> yes, uh, so I have to make that bring that disclaimer, disclaimer, just as I'm doing now, that not all forms of masculinities are toxic. There are so many masculinities that we can categorize as healthy masculinities, masculinities that uh, are very much aware of the patriarchal violence that masculinities historically have played in uh, perpetuating violence against women, perpetuating violence against queer bodies, perpetuating violence against uh, people of color and colonized bodies. Um, So it's very important to make that disclaimer so we don't lose uh, men who could be our allies, men who could in many ways use their uh, cis uh, hetero privilege in order to um, challenge and trouble patriarchy and these forms of violence um, that are situated to marginalize uh, certain genders, certain sexualities, and certain races. Um, Therefore, toxic masculinities are uh, masculinities that are um, situated in very traditional societies. Um, And by traditional societies, I don't mean that when people can immediately jump into Middle East or Asia, and then, oh, those are s- traditional societies. No, we have traditional societies in the West. By traditional societies, I mean when men take on those very traditional um, and old understanding of masculinities as uh, what ad- what does it mean to be a man? Men don't cry. Uh, men are not weak. Men are, men are strong. Men don't show emotions. Men are um, stoic, or men are always... Powerful. Uh, So, all of when they take on all these stereotypes and want to live up to them, um, then there are consequences that come with it. And those consequences are usually um, uh, they have to um, perpetuate and create violence. To get to that point and, and live to those stereotypes. And within those violence, they're usually hurting and harming themselves and also the people around them. And um, with that, like it, it's also toxic masculinity, if we put it in very um, uh, simple um, uh, form, is like a, a can of soda. So imagine a can of soda is masculinity. It's delicious when you drink it, it um, tastes good. However, if you put it in cold, in extreme cold, it explodes. Or if you put it under extreme heat, it explodes. So those extreme sides of it is the toxic part of it. So you have to find a balance of how to balance your masculinities. Similar to that, it also applies to femininities.
1: Yeah, you know, this this conversation kind of does lead me to start thinking about specifically when it comes to these mass shootings that's been g- going on. Um <laughs> mostly been perpetrated by men. A lot of them been perpetrated by men who have these certain ideologies when it comes to um yeah, the masculinity, the the what is it? the the red pill th- thought, the men's rights. Uh, do you have is this part of your research as well, sort of like looking into, into these sort of instances?
2: So my, uh, the core of my research is I look at um, the impact of war and displacement on gender and sexuality in general. And one chapter of my dissertation specifically looks at um, masculinities, Afghan men's masculinities in the diaspora. Uh, with that, I want to see the impact of the war on terror and also this continued surveillance on Muslim communities, particularly on Afghan communities since September 11, and their formation and negotiations of masculinities. By that, I mean, I conceptualized a framework that I uh, call uh, vigilant masculinities. With the field work that I've done with a lot of Afghan Americans in in California, Virginia, Washington, DC, and Maryland, um, I came across many Afghan men um, who are continuously in our communities would be, um, in, in many ways, uh, categorized as um, hyper masculine, as toxic masculine, as hegemonic masculine. And when I sat down with some of them and, and had this very heart to heart conversation, um, I wanted to know where they have learned because masculinity is also, it's not inherited. It's not something that you are born with. It's something that you're socialized and you learn. So it's the learned process. And I came to know that many of them uh, have acquired those masculine traits in relation to who they are, in relation to their racialized bodies, in relation to their colonized land, and home, which is Afghanistan, in relation to their diasporic status here in the US, and in relation to the state uh, surveillance and violence on them. And so therefore I call it vigilant masculinities. Vigilant masculinities are uh, forms of masculinities that are created uh, under these very surveilled and violent circumstances where men continuously are aware of who they are. And 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 also their status as um, and the violent man, as uh, the harmful man, which the um, narratives and discourses since September 11 has perpetuated on Muslim men in general and Afghan men in particular. So those um, narratives and discourses continuously push them to be very vigilant of their status and who they are. Of their history, of their diasporic status here, and when they, um, and also their loss of status, what they had back home and what they have here, all of those then continuously make them um, vigilant to their families, to women around them, to the LGBTQ community, and to their own masculinities. So they become very, very careful and cautious how they perform masculinity, um, and they sometimes want to take. On and also maintain those traditional masculinities that they were taught, either here or back home. And also, war has a very direct relation with masculinities because uh, war itself is a masculine phenomenon. Um, in many ways, it's gendered and it's um, waged to um, create, uh, these, um, ma- create these and create these. Uh, violent masculinities. If you look at Afghanistan historically, Afghanistan um, was a place that uh, people conducted and performed masculinities and femininities in very fluid uh, ways uh, pre-war, uh, pre the uh, um, U- um, Soviet invasion. So since then, it has started continuously to change and and become more violent. And so then. That translates into how men conduct themselves even here, because home and diaspora have a very close relationship. so my research uh, looks on masculinities and femininities, but also it looks on in the lives of uh, diasporic um, Afghan women and how they find themselves and navigate their their lives in relation to these um, state surveillance and also family. Violence, domestic violence. And then I also look at like LGBTQ uh, Afghans' lives in, in very similar ways.
1: So it sounds like you kind of view, or at least some levels of, of masculinity within the Afghan community, as like almost like a coping mechanism more than anything, um, for, given the, all the trauma that the diaspora has basically internalized.
2: It is a coping mechanism and also it's a defense mechanism because they have to. Switch, um, to just quote one of them um, uh, saying that um, that this is all I have left and I have to keep it. This is all of my afghaniyat uh, that I have left with me, and that's all I I, I have because w- within that, that the person was trying to tell me that they have lost their home, they have lost. Um, their status um, as who they were back home—they lost uh, even family ties because when when diasporas come here, uh, they slowly lose that um, tie with their their even uh, nuclear family, and and with with language barriers, with education barriers, and so what they left. Uh, are, are left with is this, this masculinity that they have to sometimes latch on to, even if they don't. The society pushes them because the society continuously racialize their masculinity and continuously uh, orientalize who they are and what they are and where they come from. So those are the things that then impact um, how they see themselves and and the way they perform their masculinity, which again goes back to um, yeah they. Um, it's a coping mechanism, but it's also a defense mechanism for uh, to protect their families, to protect themselves.
0: So is it like it's a form of identity? Because that's so powerful. This is all I have left. Like That's yes. thing they latch on to as an identity then. Their masculinity right. then becomes their identity. You know? and so exactly. Wow.
2: Yes. Because we when we talk about masculinities in diaspora and masculinities in ho- at home, yeah. That is what, which becomes masculinity um, moves uh, or swims away from j- only being a performance, but also a form of identity, Yeah, uh, like Nora said, because then it's, this is the identity one also latch on to.
1: It's also interesting because then that also brings in probably an economic standpoint of this too, because when you're a dia- member of a diaspora that comes to this country, you know, for the most part, they are skewing on the lower end of the income scale right exactly yes
2: because masculinity has a very close relationship with with wealth with economies because uh, if you look at um, even the um, 2008 when when economies started falling down in the u.s and the recession started happening that's when masculinity crisis started happening in the u.s because men started feeling um quote-unquote, less of a man, because their economies were threatened. And same for diaspora, the Afghans, especially diaspora, when they came uh, to the U.S. So all of a sudden, these gendered um, economy shifted, because women started becoming more powerful in terms of uh, having access to jobs, having access to economy, contributing to economy in ways that they weren't able to do it back home during the war. So that in, in some ways also threatened Afghan men's masculinities. And they, uh, they were no longer the breadwinners. They're no longer the protectors. They were not, no longer having the only access to wealth. Um, and so they had to share that power. Therefore, in many ways, it unsettled their understanding of masculinities.
1: So then, you know, given given your research, especially when it comes to the Afghan community, what are ways that we as the Afghan community can either challenge or potentially take our part in dismantling the, at least the toxic a- aspects of this of this masculinity?
2: I think the best platform I've seen is um, the AACs, the Afghan-American Conferences. Um, so, so far, the only platform that I've seen that um, has started and to some extent those conversations. Because many of um, our communities don't have access to these conversations because they um, they don't have time. Because honestly, diaspora families um, struggle with so much in their communities in their daily life that they don't have the privilege of sitting down and talking or thinking about their masculinities or their femininities and how that perpetuates violence, how they um, are tied to their trauma, how they um, are connected to their mental health. Um, so uh, platforms like AC or these kind of uh, podcasts um, and conversations really help because it reaches so many people and inviting men in these conversations, inviting women and queer and trans communities into these conversations is very important. Because also, uh, I would say that um, one thing that we can do is uh, having this conversation uh, across different generations. Because um, some of us um, in that who are relatively any younger generation are very receptive of these understandings, uh, whereas the older generation is not, just because those conversations haven't happened with them. So completely neglecting them is also, I think, a flaw in us, because uh, they are the ones who who spend—these grandfathers are mostly the ones who spend so much time with their grandchildren at home. So it's very important to make them aware, and the way they install those understandings of gender to their grandchildren at home.
1: You know, it's it's funny. I so I actually had that question lined up the what are ways we can but then I I just kind of peeling back behind the curtain. I was hesitant in asking you that question because I feel like as a you know, as someone who identifies as cisgendered, mm-hmm. heterosexual, all that. I I I want to be cognizant that I'm not just always putting the burden on you know, the community that's currently suffering Mm -hmm. through something to be Mm -hmm. like, what are ways I can help you (laughs) rather than just taking the brunt on, on myself. So, uh, you know, touching on that, on that issue, I, I am curious, like, do you ever just feel like tired and or frustrated with, um, you know, whether it's the community or just going through your research of like, I don't I don't have time to be the one to fix your problems if you have them like, <laughs> you know, you know, it just get better. I,
2: uh, I I think I have passed that point because when I uh, literally like married my um, research. This is like my dissertation. It's like an, an arranged marriage. Like Nora knows that when you sign up to do a PhD, you're literally like signing up for an arranged marriage with a research project and your whole career. So that's when I give up on that um, kind of frustration that uh, I would have had. But now I'm actually feel myself in a very privileged position because I've had this. Um, knowledge that I want to share back with my community. And I have learned it through so many of them. They have taught me, the women in my community have taught me what it means to be um, a good human being, what it means to be resilient, what it means to be uh, resistance to these the, different forms of power and hierarchy that um, I owe it to them. So I want to um, share that back. So, and also when uh, to just.
1: Did you, did um, you hear that, Nora? <laughs> that, one, that one's and, for you. Uh,
2: <laughs> yes, Nora as well. And to just push you back on on what you said, that like I don't think that like these conversations of masculinities are only a burden, on, let's say on the queer community. I think it should be also uh, something that all men should be part of this, all women should be part of it. All the, our communities should have these conversations openly. And I think um, it's not so. The queer and trans-Afghan community is one of the victims of these toxic masculinities. Obviously, we, again, some of us have the cis uh, privilege of being a man, and women, Afghan women are continuously the uh, victims of such violences, but also men themselves, because so many of our men suffer from mental health because of these pressures of masculinities on them. Uh, I don't think that a lot of us want to have those those masculine traits. It's sometimes um, just expected from them. So these expectations uh, impact and have consequences on their own mental, emotional, and physical health. Uh, and sometimes we completely ignore that fact. And and within my research, hopefully once I'm done, I want to open those conversations or 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 places where we can have these conversations and also talk about men's mental health.
0: That's so real. I, I mean, it's a neglected element of it. And it's interesting to think about how it relates to toxic masculinity in the sense that there's such a stigma to kind of go into discussing that, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. Sort of very, conversation related to masculinity is also issues around sexuality and yeah and i think so um we wanted to we wanted to get some language down in terms of thinking about sexuality so how does so because for someone who doesn't understand or doesn't spend a lot of time deliberating on this topic they sort of bunch the two together Mm -hmm. and um and i think that's and you know so one of the things that we were curious about is so what is when we discuss um labels such as genderqueer, what does that mean? And what does that sort of identification look like, particularly vis-a-vis like transitioning from discussing masculinity?
2: Great, yeah, that's um, a great question. I identify as genderqueer. Uh, For me, um, genderqueer is an umbrella term that encompasses many masculinities and forms of femininities, it it encompasses many genders. And so, It also is a political term because with that, um, in many, ways, it troubles this heteronormative understanding of gender, that gender could be only um, a man or a woman, or gender could be only within these understandings of heteronormative, um, heteronormativity. So genderqueer embodies not only um, a political uh, gender uh, value but also a, a, a sexual orientation that is in in resistance of heteronormativity and, and heterosexuality
0: okay.
2: So it's encompassing all of the um, in
0: resistance to okay
2: in, in resistance to but also in in, in in including of the alternative sexualities and um, the non-binary um the 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 fluid the endo, endogenous, and also um the a gender so it it includes a lot of different categories of gender within that yeah. and it also um it's political because it also uh, resists to gives a, to give away um the uh, pronounced sexuality of the person uh, by by gender queer um because it it carries um, a mystery, which we are all entitled to having a privacy to how we identify with our our bodies, how I, we identify with our sexuality, how we identify with our um, romantic um, and sexual desires for others. So it it gives us all of those that these very gendered and sexed terms and terminologies do not provide, and and. To give you just a historical context, it, it was in um, 1990s, mid-1990s, that the term started um, uh, being used by activists and, and, and queer and trans activists in resistance to um, the very gendered concepts, um, such as man, women. Um, and then um, later, it was in only 2010 and twelve that the New York Times started using it. Uh, and then that's when it has been actually more commonly used by a lot of people because um, it troubles that very rigid understanding of gender um, and also yes. gender uh, expressions. Because um, when, when I identify as genderqueer, it liberates me in many ways, what, what I wear, how I carry myself. What are the things I want people to see and what are the things I don't want people to see or know about me? So in many ways, it gives me all those different forms of freedom um, and um, liberations that other identities haven't given me. And to add on to that, I also want to say that even genderqueer itself is an English terminology, which um, then again, it is a colonized term that I'm using for Mm -hmm. the lack of access to my own languages. Because for a lot of us who don't um, speak um, English as the first language, we always have these troubles of, yeah, sorry.
0: What would the translation be? Like, how would the discussion look like in Farsi, for example?
2: Yeah, because in Farsi, we so the beauty of Farsi and and Dari um, is that it's never gendered. Uh, It's uh, has never had gender. Uh, When we talk about someone, there is no he, she. So the language is not gendered. So I grew up. Yeah, that's why.
1: That's why my parents always confuse the genders. Exactly. I still.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I I always talk about my dad in a form of uh, I use she, and then people, my friends were like, oh, what? Like you grew up with two lesbian parents, so that was a beautiful family, Afghan family. I was like, no, 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 just to. I, I I am. You must have impressed with
1: people with that, pronouns. like yeah. <laughs> bringing that up, just being like,
2: <laughs> "Wow!" For a long time, I heard Afghanistan I
1: was aggressive back then,
2: but <laughs> yeah, didn't question me. But then later they were like, "Wait, wait!" So you grew up in Afghanistan with two like moms? I said, "No, what do you mean two moms? One mom and my dad." And they said that you continuously call your dad "she." I said, oh, "Well." it doesn't translate these pronouns in my lang- native language. So that's why I want to say that a lot of the diaspora communities find it quite difficult to even mold and find themselves in these very um, English language uh, binaries because they are still very boxed. And, and I hope that we, we live in a day and I, I, that we are not forced to, to choose these uh, concepts. So we are just free to be who we are as human beings. And people refer to us just as our, to our names, not to our pronouns.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, because when you mentioned that the term was coined, I guess coined in a literal sense in the 90s and was started to get reintroduced. When did you first discover the term? Like, how did you come about it? And, and what led to that, to that level?
2: It's, I think it's It's a very long journey and process that you continuously make uh, within yourself and understanding yourself, who you are, and how um, comfortable you are with these things, labels that people have put on you, the society has put on you. Um, and um, it came up also with me uh, having the privilege of attending these, like taking these courses in gender, women, sexuality studies and um, my research taking a turn on gender and sexuality. So I was, um, and also my own activism in within the uh, queer and uh, trans communities, it allowed me to be more close to those identities and finding myself because the more you think about who you are and how the society have uh, put these labels on you. you in a, in a way, it was also for me to decolonize myself and my body because um, um, in, and we have been so colonized that I feel sometimes sometimes like there's nothing in me that's not colonized. So uh, one way of resisting that was to decolonize my gender.
1: Do you still feel, going back to what you were saying earlier, do you still feel a level of colonization given the fact that it is an English word?
2: Exactly, yeah, because it's, for us, I think, not just for us, for like our communities, for uh, brown and black communities, it's a constant struggle of what identities we take on, um, who has come up with this terminology. And so, yeah, I think that I will never be able to um free myself from the shackle of colonization because I was born in the middle of an occupation and I continue to live in many ways parts of me, home, my home, my family lives in, in under colonization. And I live as a settler colonizer in a different another land. So yeah, like my whole life and identities and existence are in relation to colonization.
1: And how you, the, you know the identity that, that you that you've identified, how does it do you feel like it informs your work like in terms of your research and your dissertation and everything like that?
2: Um, yes. Yeah, so within my dissertation, I um, work with different concepts and um, in one part, I also talk about uh, troubling the the understanding of um, LGBTQ communities within the Afghan communities and of understanding of gender and sexuality because our language um, five thousand years ago uh, as our um, uh, cause and and say uh, uh, was uh, created, it was not gendered so when somebody tells me that oh like Afghans are so homophobic, Afghans are transphobic. I'm like, come on. We invented a language that was not gendered. So this is on you. Your colonization brought all those sorts of violence on us, including homophobia and transphobia. Uh, so within that, I, in many ways, I trace the history of this um, queer understandings and, and, and uh, existence and, and resistance within uh, Afghanistan and how that translates today with our understandings of gender and sexuality and love and intimacy. Because in many ways, uh, if you look at like uh, poetries of Rumi, Hafez and all these other uh, big people we celebrate, they were never gendered. And in many ways they were celebration of queerness and uh, or intimacy among so many people. Where um, even today in Afghanistan, it's just because of these um, globalization patterns that is happening, uh, that is uh, literally shoving down um, homophobia down the, our throat. But before that, it was, um, it was not like that. Pre-war, uh, if you look at that, um, Afghans had a, what we, today we call genderqueer. That's what we what we were.
0: I love that because I feel like that's a part of the history that um, when we talk about these, co- when we're having this conversation, I feel like even people in our diaspora community are like, oh, you're being so progressive, and why are you having these conversations when what you're saying is this is us returning to how we thought of things in Afghanistan. Like this Exactly. Is not true. We're just decolonizing our minds. Now, you said the word love. So, like, yes. that has, like... That's one of my favorite words. So now I have to ask you, how does one find love in Minneapolis? Because you are stuck in, like, the ugliest, coldest state in America, but...
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> Even though, like, I'm from Ohio and Michigan, so it's not like I'm, you know, throwing, you know, shade. It's,
1: no, no, you are throwing shade. That's okay. That's okay.
2: It's actually you're very sorry. sunny and beautiful today, just like love oh. is, so... And plus, when it's cold, you actually need want to find love because you, you want somebody to keep you warm. You are oh, hotter than oh. yourself,
1: <laughs> it, I am watching the Battle of the Midwest right now.
2: It's actually, no, honestly, it's actually, a lot of people wish they had a lover from Midwest because the Midwest are very family oriented. They are actually want to be in love because it's cold seven months. And you don't want to be just alone at home. You want to cook with somebody. You want to um, watch TV with somebody. You want a Netflix and chill. So all of those happen.
1: <laughs> so yeah, okay, hold on. <laughs> I, <there's laughs> like a question my I have. a Seconds. Don't worry. There is a question though that oh, I'll, I'll um, I do want to ask, which is like, what is Minnesota nice? Do you know what that is? That term.
2: It's they usually call yes, um, it's Minnesota ice. Usually, <laughs>
1: oh, is that is that how Minnesota, it's done?
2: Yeah, it's a form of like passive aggressiveness. That if you're not, uh, they call it Minnesota ice. But for foreigners or uh, mostly uh, people of color here, we see it as a passive aggressiveness of the Midwest. Um, that they would smile at you, but the smile doesn't mean that I'm like. I want to welcome you. It's more of like, I don't know you. I just want to create this space um, between me and you. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, and within that, to just go back to also Nora's uh, question of how to find love in Minneapolis, I think finding love for a lot of queer and trans Muslims in general, especially for Afghans, um, is quite of a struggle because the, the struggle is, starts even within family because queer and trans um, Afghans uh, live in, in, and navigate their lives in, in two uh, different intimate spaces of the familiar homophobia and the societal um, Islamophobia. So when you are torn between these two spaces and you're continuously um, pushed out of love, Because when a queer Afghan goes home, um, the home becomes sometimes a site of violence. Um, And and then when that same person goes to a queer space, that queer space becomes a site of violence and Islamophobia. And so finding love becomes more of, and not a priority in many ways, because Uh, you want to find survival first. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and in many ways, you have to find love yourself because um, continuously in our, uh, and within the queer and trans communities, the conversations about how to first love yourself because you know that in many ways, um, you are pushed out of that familial love. You are continuously pushed from that uh, community love that you used to have when you were a child. Um, so um, it becomes a sort of like, sur- like love for yourself so you can survive and love in your own existence because you have to exist in those spaces um, to, uh, to fight for love. And so um, many people in, in queer and, and, and trans Muslims in, in Minneapolis find love within outside familiar uh, space and, and the kinship circle. Because uh, you have to create your own community that loves you. A chosen family um, could be the place that you actually are loved and accepted fully with with who you are and and how you present yourself. And so then love becomes also very problematic because um, when you are a Muslim or a person of color and also then you are queer, you are um, living under... many intersections of violence and, and rejection. Because all of those sometimes, or some of them, could be uh, reasons that people would reject you and reject your love or question your love. Um, and so uh, when love is questioned, um, you sometimes uh, lose hope. But from what I have seen from the queer and trans community, um, that they have turned out to resistance. They have turned that to uh, sort of strength uh, to help themselves survive, and um, and also I think these the beautiful part of it is that, that then you uh, start to embrace differences. You you try to actually uh, find love in very like Rihanna's song, finding love in like hopeless places. And you do actually find it because. Hang
1: on, you were so cautious about, like, I don't know pop culture, like, don't test me on pop culture. And now you're citing Rihanna over here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have danced to that song so many times, I can't (laughs) ignore it. Oh. And so I do love
1: Rihanna, so that's a good pop
2: culture. Exactly. So, and then you find it in many unorthodox, hopeless places. And, um, In in Minneapolis, it's also um, Midwest. So there is, uh, when you're a person of color, um, you have it harder to find love because there's a very smaller um, people of color communities. So you have to then move out of that conference zone that you have and put yourself out for the possible rejection of the white desire. and, and that becomes a lot of trouble because um, you, in, you want to have, find that queer love, but at the same time, um, you know that your love and your body, your desires, everything is racialized. Um, I didn't realize that when, until I walked into these queer spaces, and that's when I realized who I am that people see me as brown, people see me as somebody who has a thick accent, people see me as Muslim, people see me uh, all these other attributes that I never ever thought about it when I thought about love. So when you actually uh, have these marginalized identities, when it comes to love, you have to think about them so deeply. And then within that journey, you start understanding yourself. And sometimes you fall in love with yourself. And become yeah. narcissistic
1: like me. Oh, I mean, come on. Who has? Who hasn't gone through that, right?
0: That was so beautiful, though. Then you fall in love with yourself. <laughs> this is why I'm your fangirl.
1: Uh, on the flip side of that, like, do you also find, in addition to rejection, do you also get these weird senses of like fetishism because you are a you know brown Muslim uh, person?
2: Uh, yes, um, because so it it's a very, I would say, delicate situation or delicate spaces that you c- continuously have to navigate, um, and it's not only your presence in that space, but also your accent, your religion, your body, what you wear, your food. Um, the smell on your skin that comes from that like delicious korma that you had or the Qabli you had and I never realized that, that how much of those smell like carries with me until I went to these spaces and you just become more of a form of consumption, a form of um, a, a, a delicious meal that they can eat somewhere for um, one time uh, of the ethnic um, delicacy that they want to experience and 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 it's it's not just the fetishization but it's also um, in many ways the orientalization of um, Mm -hmm. your existence Um, and then you become somebody's one night um, experience or one time study abroad experience Um, but and so it it breaks you in many ways, but also it builds you because then you know um, where to go, who to love, who to fall in love with. It's very um, it's 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 very important for me because uh, growing up in Afghanistan in my own um, because of the this freedom that my language had given me, that it was not gendered, i I wrote poems. Um, and the poems didn't have any gender, so I was also allowed myself to fall in love with whoever I wanted to, um, in my own imaginations. Because I also knew that that's the only uh, that's the only way where I could fall in love. And when I came here, all of those even became troubled because I knew that even within my own imaginations, I couldn't fall in love with all these other um, with all these different people that would continuously fetishize me or. Uh, orientalize me. Um, and I actually have done um, some research on that within the queer and trans Muslim community, and uh, things I've heard from them are so troubling of um, how many times it breaks them and um, and then you f- try to find love within the Muslim community, and then that comes with double trauma because Uh, to be a queer Muslim and then also dating another queer Muslim, um, it's like you're just calling more trauma in your life, uh, more rejection, because then all of a sudden that you're you're trying to build each other, but then you're both two broken pieces. Um, And and, and I realized personally that I was hurting the other person and the other person was continuously hurting me Um, So then you have to find this balance of finding someone who understands you fully, but also uh, creating these boundaries of what I accept and what I don't accept at all. Because love, when I was growing up and and the way I was taught, was like selflessness. You give everything you have um, and sacrifice, but the more I learned in this space, because you live in diaspora, because you you come with uh, different experiences of war and violence and queerness, um, then love becomes also more of a very rational thought process of who you can fall in love and who you can't fall in love. And um, then you also have to build these selfish walls around you that doesn't allow those people to fetishize you, doesn't allow those people to hurt you uh, because you need to survive.
1: That was that was really beautiful. I, I really, you know, we both are really grateful for that level of vulnerab- vulnerability you just gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we really, really appreciate it. Um, you know, going into vulnerability um i do want to transition one last time um but this time it's for a different kind of vulnerability mm-hmm. um because we're going to be playing a trivia so, game with you okay Twice
0: awesome. is not fair when it comes to this i'm just warning
1: <laughs> i have no idea what you're talking about these are fair questions these are good questions okay right. so uh, just in case for the listeners, um, if they're not aware. So, what we're doing with our guests is we are playing a trivia game uh, 10 questions, and we have, you know, the, we have a, it's, King of the Hill style, where whoever scores the highest amount, or Queen of the Hill, whoever scores the highest amounts.
2: Exactly. Will... I was like, Excuse me, where's the I, Queen?
1: <laughs> I've learned in the hour that we had this conversation.
2: <laughs> like, you are already being like <laughs> discriminatory I against pounds. me. <laughs>
1: How disappointed would you be that after this hour conversation, I showed that I learned nothing?
2: <laughs> just yeah, you just remain the hetero. No, I want to be a queen. I have always been a queen. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I I made sure of that. I made sure to include that language. Okay, so uh, currently we only had one person participate. So uh, Nelephod is still top of the the chain. I believe she has like five or six. I don't know. I should probably re-listen and count the score. Okay. So here are the ground rules. So the ground rules are is I'm going to ask you 10 questions. Uh, These are rapid fire questions. Uh, And so you only have five seconds to answer each one. Uh, And, you know, once, once you finish, we gather your score and we determine uh, we're going to, you know, tabulate it amongst the rest of the Samovar network group and Mm -hmm. figure out who's, uh, Who's going, to be, who's going to be on top? So, are you ready?
2: Okay. I am ready. I'm always on top.
1: All right. So, question one Name an ingredient in Mantu.
2: Name an
1: ingredient in Mantu.
2: Oh, um, ground beef.
1: All right. Got one One for one. Um, question number two What is the capital of Afghanistan? Oh my God, so quick with it and correct again. Question number three. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Question number three, hey, you know what? I don't write the questions here. Question number three, what is better, a nice scarf or a cool hat?
2: Nice scarf. Because Noran, ha- I have like really, yeah. Beautiful, yeah, we are fond of scarves.
1: Yeah, normally I would pick a cool hat, but given your connection already, I'm gonna go ahead and I'll, I'll give sure. you the points. Okay. All right, so uh next question who would win in an arm wrestling match a squirrel or a chipmunk a squirrel all right that's He's that's good that all right confident. who would, next question who would win in an arm wrestling match me or a squirrel me no me me or a squirrel Weiss Weiss. Or, or Weiss. Or a oh a squirrel, squirrel. How <laughs> <dare> you <laughs> okay Definitely okay just a squirrel okay there's just no doubt. Just to take a time out, he did not flinch at all with that answer. <laughs> you know what, just for that, I'm gonna say that one's wrong. Okay. I'm, I'm offended. Right. Well, question. I didn't
2: know that you are a chipmunk, so.
1: <laughs> I, I Earlier am just- It
2: was like, a squirrel or a chipmunk, and then immediately changed it to
1: me. Okay. I was
2: like, oh, are you giving clarification? <laughs>
1: I just i just I don't even know if I can finish I'm this. So All right, right better if
2: you within these questions. I'm insulting <laughs> him back so that's good.
1: Better, <laughs> better honestly, if it was Omar, then I would give you the point if you insulted him, but if it's me, I don't know i'm I'm a little more sensitive. Better poet, Rumi or oh, Ahmad Zaire. Better poet, Rumi or Ahmad Zaire.
2: Rumi, Ahmad Zaire wasn't even a poet. He was this a singer?
1: I'm sorry that's <laughs> not correct. it's Ahmad Zaire. <laughs> Uh, just because he, he took what Rumi's like, he took that poetry and just made it better.
2: Oh, seriously! Like now, you all also probably think that Shahrukh can sing.
1: Like, Absolutely. I
2: feel like, I feel like you're one of those people who would call the radio. Oh, can I have a song of like Shahrukh? Yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, oh. or Amitabh Bachchan. Yeah. Yeah, Amitabh <laughs> Bachchan,
2: and it's like, excuse me, they don't sing. Those are like <laughs> backup singers for them. <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, next question. If you can, if you had a superpower, which would it be? Teleportation or the ability to read minds? To read minds. That's sure. Tr- that's correct. Teleportation. You still have to go through passport control. How are you gonna? You can't just teleport. You're gonna have to teleport to an airport. What Actually, if you get and,
2: all the, and also the angry TSA. So no, thank you. Next. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you still have to go through TSA. <laughs> that, they don't tell you that about teleportation. <laughs> you still exactly. have to go through airport security. Uh, better but animal. with
2: mines you have to go through so many dirty mines.
1: Yeah. Uh that's true. But <laughs> that's still the correct answer. You're
2: like, oh yoke. <laughs>
1: All right, better better animal, tiger or lion? Tiger. I'm sorry, lion lion's king lion's king or queen of the jungle. Come on. It's 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 always lions. All right. <laughs> Question number nine. Pie or cake?
2: Like he's just like <laughs> by himself. And and he gives explanation that like only like satisfies himself. <laughs>
0: This is hegemonic masculinity at work.
2: Right? Exactly. I was. I didn't want to say it. Thank you that you said it because I didn't want to like corner him and say, "Oh, you know what? Well, we." I just said that was you.
1: <laughs> you know what? I'm just showing the listener what toxic masculinity can really look like <laughs> in the form of a trivia question. All right, uh, and question he's, number he's
2: nine. Also, hasn't let you speak for like a long time. You know that, right? What's and up? I can only see Nora half of your face. So this is the Afghan man. Masculinity. <laughs> uh, hiding
0: behind
1: each other? Yeah.
2: You hiding behind each other and only half of your face.
1: While I'm yelling at you. <laughs> this is really, this is not a good look. All right, question number nine, pie or cake?
2: Cake. That's correct. Although I'm in the Midwest, we eat pie all the time. I
0: was going to say, what's going on? I thought the answer would be pie.
1: Oh,
2: no, no, no it's cake okay because I've had so many pies.
1: Yeah, frosting. Frosting is is so much better than anything that pie can. But anyway, last question. This well, is ice cream a, the pie. Well, that's a different question then. If it's if you can add a, it, although ice cream cake is also pretty good. Question number. Uh, last also, question.
2: Cake, cake uh, Murabodar, the Afghan cake that has like uh, jam in the middle.
1: I mm-hmm. no,
0: never
2: had that. Oh, okay, come on! It's in every store, like I grew up on that, and my brother, my older brother, would always buy me that from his own pocket money and to this day he always tells me that like remember i bought you all that cakes, so whatever i say you have to listen
1: i mean that's foolproof just that's foolproof logic (laughs) all right so last question better city minneapolis or saint paul
2: um saint paul
1: oh because i live in saint paul okay fine i'll give you that one then
2: so how I have nine, right? Yes,
1: I have. Uh, I know this is, I think because you challenged me and pushed me, I kind of respected that and I gave you more points.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Challenge me and push me. We will we'll always, if it's me and Nora, we will always push you, throw you around. <laughs> That's
0: exactly. You deal with political scientists.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and even have even have a squirrel to like beat you in wrestling. <laughs> and I
1: still gave you more points than Nilufar, and you said that I would would lose in an arm wrestling I'm match. I'm
2: so pretty. How can you not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man, uh, this is just today was. No, this is just not a good ending for I really didn't stick the landing on this. <laughs> I'm like sweating now. I got. I got. But you know, it's a, you know what? I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. All right, so um, so last thing. So um, you have some book chapters that you wanted to promote, so I wanted to give you a little bit of an opportunity to discuss that.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so I have a book chapter in a book that's coming up in May. It's called Queer Voices, and it's a collection of poems, uh, literary writings, and prose. And And the editor is Andrea Jenkson, who is one of our leading trans um, uh, politicians so please uh, find it on amazon and anywhere just type queer voices and you'll find a book on amazon and i have two chapters there and this is my very first time promoting so i don't know how else (laughs) i can promote so don't stare at me
1: (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that was that was a great job And if, if people who enjoyed this conversation You know, this is This is a good reflection of Of, you know, your Your voice and your perspective And I think we would appreciate reading that So we're looking forward to when that comes out But Kais, thank you so thank much you. for taking the time with us
2: Thank you so much for You and Nora What was your name, by the way?
1: <laughs> oh My god This is just a new low. <laughs> I am going to sit in the corner and just cry tears. I'm gonna show I'm gonna I'm gonna show some vulnerability. What? I think we're losing Nora twice. I think we're losing Nora. Now what
2: happened to Nora?
1: That's okay, she got okay. <laughs> she got out. But anyway, so thank you so much for stopping by.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Weiss. <laughs>